All right. Welcome to another crucial session in the third edition of uh, the University of Ghana School of Law, Law in Crisis Zoom Seminars. I want to thank you, especially our participants, for making the time to join us today. But the biggest thanks go to our panelists who have agreed to share their views with us today. Um, today, we are looking at a very interesting topic that has practical implications for businesses across the continent. On the 1st of January this year, the African Continental Free Trade Area took off in the sense that trading started on the 1st of January, 2021. Now, Ghana and South Africa have really communicated to the wider world of their commitment and readiness to start trading immediately. How are the African countries, in particular those that have not specifically indicated their commitments to start trading and preparing for trading? What do they need in place to join trading? What are the challenges that traders in Africa, business men and women in Africa, need to be aware of and to address to be able to benefit from this big, huge market in Africa. And today we have a wonderful uh, group of panelists who are going to help us to understand the issues and who are going to be offering words of wisdom in terms of how we can together move this after trade agenda forward. Now, let me start by introducing our first panelist for today, who is the person of Dr. Francis Mangini. Uh, Dr. Francis Mangini, who I call Uncle, Uncle Mangini, is, <laughs> is currently the head, the head of trade promotion and programs are the Secretariat of the African uh, Continental Free Trade Area. So I'll just shorten it to AFTA. So when I say AFTA Secretariat, I'm talking about the headquarters of this trading block. And Dr. Mangini is our head of uh, trade promotions and programs here. Before that, he was director of trade at Comesa, and he has a very long and impressive uh, profile in uh, policy and in particular trade and regional integration. So if I want to read, the entire profile will be here for, for a long time. So Dr. Mangini comes to us with a lot of experience in regional integration. And as I've just said, he's very much at the forefront of the implementation of the agreement. So Dr. Mangini, welcome to today's session. Thank you. And Thank the next you. panelist. <laughs> the next panelist we have is my good friend, Prudence Sabahizi. Prudence is, I would say, one of the people who have been involved in this after project from the very beginning. 
He works in the Department of Trade and Industry. He's a Chief Technical Advisor on AFTA at the Department of Trade and Industry uh, at the African Union Commission. And um, he is the man who has all the facts. He knows everything that there is to know about the negotiation process. And he knows about where we are now uh, as a continent in this particular area. And I'm very happy that uh, Prudence has agreed to join us today. So Prudence, my friend, welcome. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Prudence. Our next panelist is uh, somebody I call my senior, <laughs> and he's indeed a senior. That's uh, Mr. David Ofosudote. Uh, Mr. David Ofosudote is somebody who's known to many of us across the continent, especially in Africa, uh, in Ghana in particular. Mr. Ofosudote is the founder and senior partner of AB and David Africa, which is a Pan-African business law firm with offices in, uh, in about five African countries. And then they have a network, they work with a network of over 24 uh, law firms across the continent. And uh, David is known for his, his, his work in uh, public-private partnerships and uh, infrastructure transactions. But David is also very active and involved in the after agenda. I'm not going to read out all that he has done so far, but I just want to point out that David is very instrumental in the work of Afro Champions. And for those who don't know, Afro Champions is one of the organizations that is leading the charge to get African businesses on board, to get them involved in this after project. So David is an executive of Afro Champions. Um, and He's also a co-author of the recently published AFTA Year Zero reports on country commitment and readiness for AFTA. So this is very much uh, in his wheelhouse. So David, we are very happy to have you join us today and welcome to the session. Thank you, Augustine. Yes. Uh, finally, of course, by no means the least, is my good friend, Adelaide Bene Prempe. Alibeda Prempe is the managing, founder and managing partner of BMP, which is a law firm, commercial and corporate law firm in Ghana. She has done a lot of work in, uh, in advising businesses on how to take advantage of um, the AFTA regime to promote their business across the continent. And she's very active in discussions about getting women and the youth to get involved or to get on board the trade agenda. So Adelaide, welcome to today's session. Thank you very much, Augustine, for the kind introduction. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, so this session, like all the other sessions that we've had in this series, is going to last for an hour and uh, 45 minutes. Um, I'm going to allow each of the panelists to address a specific topic. And of course, we'll, we'll field questions to, to help us to follow the conversation. This is a very much uh, an informal discussion. And uh, we, are, we are happy that we have this wonderful uh, panel to help us. Now, there's a panelist, as you may have noticed from the informational that went out, 
we had uh, another panelist, Mr. Dubé Memory from the African Development Bank who was supposed to join us today, but unfortunately she's had a bit of a technical challenge uh, and will not be able to join us for today's session. But not to worry, the topic that she was supposed to address, all the other panelists would address uh, that topic together. All right, so for, and to our participants, please, there's an opportunity for you to ask questions at the end of the session, but please keep your questions coming and when we get there, we'll read out your questions for our panelists to give us answers. All right, so let's get started. Um, we'll start with Dr. Francis Mangini and my uncle Mangini will give us a broad introduction of where we came from, where we are now. Um, and he will do that by giving us context so that we understand that this after project is not just a project for a few African countries. Uh, at the last count, about 35 African countries have implemented this agreement and the agreement is enforced for them. So 35 African countries are ready to trade amongst themselves under this particular agreement. But this is a, a broader AU project. And I will invite Dr. Francis Mangini to give us a context. Just tell us how this after project fits into the AU's flagship agenda, the so-called Agenda 2063. Right. Thank you so much, uh, my nephew, Augustine Kinsaw. Yeah, so he is my nephew, and I'm very happy and proud to see my nephew uh, moderating this season, this session. I would also like to recognize my sister Adelaide, whom I'm just uh, meeting now, uh, my good friend uh, uh, David, uh, Prudence, and uh, I think there's somebody from the University of Ghana, whom uh, I hope to uh, get to know uh, very soon. Now, a distinguished uh, moderator and my fellow panelists and participants, the African continental free trade area is a dream come true. The dream has been around for a long time. You can go back to the year 1900 when we had the first Pan-African conference, which sought to address issues of improving the welfare of colonized peoples around the world. And then maybe you can fast track to the year 1945, when we had another Pan-African conference. At that time, we already had people like Kwame Nkrumah, Jomo Kenyatta, Kenneth Kaunda, Julius Nyerere, who had now uh, come of age and were demanding decolonization of Africa with immediate uh, effect. And then maybe you can uh, uh, notice that uh, by the year uh, 1957, uh, Ghana became independent. And then on the 25th of May, 1963, we formed the Organization for African Unity with a primary objective of political emancipation or achieving the decolonization of Africa. So we waged a war both in terms of arms as well as diplomatic agency throughout Africa and throughout the world to achieve our independence and decolonization. We achieved this. Uh, in 1990 with the independence of uh, uh, Namibia. So at the summit, which was held in 1991 in Abuja, the Abuja summit, we declared that we had achieved the decolonization of Africa. 
though of course we are aware that countries like Mauritius think that they are pending, you know, issues about decolonization. Now, again, in 1991, we pivoted towards economic Pan-Africanism, having been working on the political Pan-Africanism. So the Abuja Treaty now sets out a 34-year blueprint for forming the African Economic Community. That's by the year 2028, uh, which is counted from the year 1994, where the Abuja Treaty entered into a force. This African Economic Community is eventually both an economic union and a monetary union, and it goes through six stages. These stages include the regional economic communities forming free trade areas, customs unions, then us forming the continental customs uh, uh, common market by the year 2023. We were supposed to form the continental customs union by the year 2019, we missed that. But we got something better. We got the African continental free trade area in the year 2020. So the point I'm making, Augustine, is that this has been a long-standing dream for us to be uh, united as Africa, to create a single common market. And we are on the, the trajectory uh, towards an economic and monetary union. We have taken a solid step. As we speak now, now coming to where we are, uh, we've started commencing as of 1st January 2021. There is proof for this. On the 4th of January this year, Ghana sent a consignment exported to South Africa using the documents for the African Continental Free Trade Area, notably the certificate of origin. The Ghana Revenue Authority issued an African Continental Free Trade Area certificate of origin, which certified that the consignment was made in Africa, was a product made in Africa, and therefore qualifying for preferences under the African Continental Free Trade Area. So if there is any skeptic left out there, who doubts whether the African continental free trade area works, you have your answer now. And we can produce documents to prove that we are actually trading under the African continental free trade area. Now going ahead, we need to implement, implement, implement. We need member states and state parties to implement. The other factor is that we have got 34 countries that have ratified the African continental free trade area. This is a good crop to begin with. And then we have got 41 who have produced market access offers or tariff schedules, a good crop to begin with, and 34 initial services uh, offers. So we are doing well. We have got off to a very good start. And incrementally, we are going to have a continent-wide uh, compliance or signature as well as ratification, we hope, by the end of this year. So that's what I can say to begin our discussion. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Mangini, I... I hear you. Thank you very much for this submission. But um, 54 African countries have signed on to the agreement. And as you just said, 34, 35 have ratified and it's enforced for them. And then you have also made a point that this is a flagship project for the continent. What do you think uh, is the problem? Because if 54 have signed on, only 34 are ready to trade under that. What do you think is the missing link here? Because one would have expected that if this was an AU project as it is, and 54 have signed on, but now we should have not less than 50 countries already on board for us to say that, yes, we have a continent-wide trading block in effect. 
All right, so you are raising two perspectives there. Is the glass half empty or half full? That's the first one you're raising. So while you think it is uh, half empty, <laughs> I would say it's half full. It's half full. Uh, 34 is a, a convincing credible number to have for ratifications in a record period of under two years. In terms of timelines, time we started negotiations on the 1st of June, 2015. 21st March, 2018, we concluded the negotiations, opened the agreement for signature. Within just over one, uh, one year, that is 30th May, 2019, the agreement entered into force, right? After achieving the required 22 ratifications. And as we speak now, we have 34, which is well above the required uh, 22. So I think that we are doing quite well. And I make that assessment, uh, taking into account that there are negotiations like those under the World Trade Organization, the Doha Development Agenda, which started in the year 2001, in November 2001. As we speak now, 20 years later, they haven't concluded the negotiations. Uh, the European Union, they were struggling since 1957 up to 1982, they, it really hadn't taken off. So it was only in 1982 that they really came together with a matrix of outstanding measures, more than 300, which then jacked the law, started implementing vigorously in, in order for them to have the common market in the year 1992. Having started way back in the 50s. So I think Africa having moved from design, initiation of negotiations, conclusion, of negotiations, signature, ratification, and the commencement of trading in five and a half years, only five years and a half. This is record breaking. And I think Africa should pat itself on the back for having performed so well. So I think we are doing well. And uh, uh, the point to make, which the Secretary General, His Excellency in Saumene Wamakele has also been making, is that let us not judge Africa by a different standard. Let us look at how other negotiations around the world drag and drag and drag on endlessly. And then see in contrast, how Africa has been able to move so fast, you know, as I'm saying within five and a half years to move from design to commencement of trading. Now, uh, 54 countries have signed, only the state of Eritrea hasn't signed. So this is wonderful. 34 is more than 50% of Africa. So this is wonderful. 41 market offers is more than 50% of Africa. This is wonderful. So we have got off to a good start, a convincing, credible start with the proof of trading happening. And I take the view, therefore, that we should be uh, positive about this. The momentum is quite high. The political ownership is very high indeed. You only need to listen to the president of Ghana, to the president of Niger, the, the champion, the president of South Africa, the president of Rwanda, uh, Kagame, all presidents practically around the continent. And you will see how motivated they are about this. You only have to go to a stakeholder workshop and listen to stakeholders and see how they are raring to go, how they are convinced that the African continent of free trade area has promised for them. In fact, studies, analysis around the world show that uh, the welfare impact will be very significant on the continent. Uh, the World Bank, for instance, suggests that uh, we shall lift 100 million people out of poverty by the year 2035 if we implement the African continent of free trade area. We're going to have more studies, for instance, the International Labor Organization 
the Economic Commission for Africa on this. So we may have some varying statistics going forward. But what we have now is a unanimity that the welfare impact will be positive and significant for the people of Africa. And that's why they're just right to look forward to it. So I would like to be positive, to be very optimistic indeed, and to call upon all African people, all people of goodwill throughout the world, that Africa is open for business, please utilize it and let us create jobs, generate decent jobs, high incomes, and improve the standards of living of our people, lift them out of poverty, and transform Africa through regional value chains, industrialization. So this is my assessment of what's going on. It is good. It's positive. Well done, Africa. You know? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. That's a Wangini. <laughs> really grateful. Now, one of the points you made is that um, um, this will all work out if African countries take a positive attitude towards this. We believe in ourselves and we have the can-do spirit. And then we say that, yes, we want to do this. But one of the challenges that is on top of mind for all of us is the impact of COVID-19 not just on the implementation. I want to go back to even the negotiation. As you know, we've, we are done with phase one, phase two is, is, is ongoing. And then there is phase three coming up on uh, e-commerce. Now, how has COVID-19 impacted this process and how do we see it impacting the ongoing implementation uh, efforts by developed by the African countries. Now to address this, I want to, to invite the man who I would say has been in, has been in the inner sanctum of the discussions on rules in this area. And that is my good brother, uh, Prudence. So Prudence. Yes. Sir. Yes. Can you quickly take us through what the impact has been in yes. terms of implementation, ongoing negotiations of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. How has COVID-19 impacted it? Should we worry about it? Should we not worry? Um, is there likely to be a delay in the implementation for some countries? And are we going to see a delay in the negotiation process for the, the conclusion of negotiation for the other phase, especially phase two, which is deals with investment and which is what most people are really, really interested in? Uh, yes, thank you very much, um, Augustine. Uh, let me start by apologizing that you can't see me, uh, but rather see my picture. I was trying to uh, to deal with internet connectivity, so whenever I turn my camera on, I was getting disconnected. So I think I feel safer uh, speaking behind the scene. Um, before I address your question, let me greet the audience. Good afternoon, everyone and also recognize the presence of my uh, good friends, uh, Dr. Mangeni, uh, Dr. David, and uh, uh, welcome Adelaide. I think we haven't met physically yet. I'm happy to see you. Um, let me also appreciate the background that uh, Dr. Mangeni has given on African integration process, which is very much encouraging and add to his voice to say that Africa has now achieved a lot uh, because we do not we do not see Africa's integration from AFCFTA perspective alone, 
but rather we see it from where we came from up to where we are now. And I would like to emphasize that uh, we have regional economic communities across the continent. Um, eight of them have done tremendous work. Some of those have reached the level of uh, common market and even monetary union, uh, such as East African community. Uh, you have ECOWAS, they, have, uh, they are now implementing um, a common market, uh, I mean a customs union. But uh, the AFCFTA comes in to consolidate all those efforts and then achieve the global vision of the continent of having African economic community by the year 2028, as Dr. Mangeni has mentioned. So we have to have that background in mind. Let's not judge AFCFTA from where it started uh, five years ago, but rather what Africa has achieved in different regions and what we are still achieving. Uh, with regard to the impact of COVID-19 pandemic, I look at it from two perspectives. Uh, one, I look at it from the challenge perspectives uh, that it caused at the beginning because people were panicking, not knowing where we are heading. But I also look at it from the perspective of a good opportunity for successful AFCFTA. Yes, it has impacted on our processes at the beginning. Um, when countries, when African countries uh, introduced lockdowns and travel restrictions, it was very difficult to continue the momentum of negotiations as we had achieved before. Um, even the national processes of ratification had also stalled. Uh, if you compare um, uh, this with the, uh, the, the achievement we made in, 19, in 2019 when um, we already had uh, about 27 ratification uh, within one year. So uh, the time of COVID-19 has slowed down that momentum and only a few countries have added to that number. And uh, as of today, we have 34 uh, ratifications that have been concluded. So I think there was a lot of panic, uh, both at continental and national levels, and the processes were to some extent affected. And with regard to negotiations, of course, um, physical meetings were stopped. Uh, we had to find a solution. And by the mid of June, 2020, we were able to agree with member states that negotiations can continue. Um, online using online platforms, and we're able to conclude uh, some outstanding work that has um, made it possible uh, to start trading um, on the 1st of January 2021. Uh, but also you will recall that a decision was made to start trading on the 1st of July 2020. That deadline was missed because uh, partly of COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that was a big blow uh, for the private sector, uh, who was waiting impatiently to see the FCFTA market flourishing. So those are some of the negative uh, impact that COVID has had on the FCFTA process. But we also saw this as a good opportunity to encourage African member states and stakeholders to embrace the opportunities of the FCFTA. In what sense? 
Um, when we saw the global supply chains being uh, disrupted due to uh, COVID-19 pandemic, the only solution that we could see for the continent was to put more efforts in the success of the AFCFTA market. And I'm saying this because I'm very much convinced that right from the beginning, today Africa has been trading amongst each other uh, at a level of less than 20%. So which means that we're lying on the rest of the world for about 80% of trade. So if global um, uh, supply chains were, were disrupted by COVID-19 pandemic, then it was a big threat for us to starve if we do not find solutions internally. So we kept encouraging African producers to ensure that they produce and produce enough for the continent so that we become a bit uh, self-reliant and not depend much on the outside world in terms of imports because we've seen corridors being, trade corridors being affected by, uh, by these uh, restrictive measures that have been put in place by different countries. So we can only unlock that situation if we rely on African uh, policymakers, on African business people and African uh, producers to ensure that we are able to produce for African market. And I think- Yes, yes that's a point. That's a, a follow-up question. Sorry, a follow-up question on that. Now, these uh, restrictive measures, very important point, but does that challenge still not persist even within the context of trading under AFTA, trading within Africa? Don't we still have those restrictive measures? Um, I, I think the restrictive measures were put in place globally by countries individually, but the duty of AFCFTA that has brought together African countries has made it possible for African countries to sit together and put in place guidelines for different trade corridors that will facilitate movement of goods, not disrupt movement of goods, but rather facilitate movement of goods. So you cannot have such an arrangement with a country where you do not have a policy or legal framework that make you with that country. It can only happen because Africa, we have this SATA framework. So I, I can say that uh, those restrictive measures to some extent have been dealt with by introducing those kind of guidelines for trade corridors across the continent. Yes, uh, following up on the issue of negotiations, have the online negotiations been effective? And how are they progressing? What's the status now? I can say yes. I can say yes. Uh, this was even foreseen um, before uh, COVID-19 came up. Um, on tariff negotiations, we had already envisaged uh, a tariff negotiation tool, which is online. And this has now become more relevant with COVID-19. This tool was introduced in 2019, but now it's only in 2020 that countries have realized the importance of using the tool for negotiations. We have introduced the same tool for negotiations on trading services because it was very important that 
countries have to interact regularly on those technical matters of negotiations. And with regard to rules of origin, we've been able to organize uh, a series of online meetings uh, to have such conversation. And I think all negotiators now feel comfortable to continue the work uh, using online platforms and giving more prominence to even uh, e-commerce for the continent, which was uh, an area where uh, countries had uh, reluctance to include in the scope of FCFT. But now you can see e-commerce is going to become the anchor of AFCFT implementation. Right, thank you. Just uh, one more question on that, uh, Prudence. Uh, phase two negotiations, where are we at now? Do you foresee that this is something that can be concluded this year? Because uh, phase two deals with very crucial uh, areas of the economy. We're talking about competition, we're talking about investment, we're talking about IP and this COVID-19 era, one of the things that trade policy analysts and advisors talking about is IP. When are we seeing some traction on this? Um, yes, uh, it's, it's very important to mention that four uh, more protocols are expected um, from phase two and phase three negotiations, uh, mainly a protocol on competition policy, a protocol on intellectual property rights, a protocol on investment and a protocol on e-commerce. And those protocols are expected to be concluded by end of this year, by 31st of December 2021. Uh, th this is, of course, um, a, an ambitious target um, which can be achieved um, if we have commitment, the same commitment we had uh, when we were negotiating the protocols on training goods, training services, and district settlement. Um, I can confirm that the roadmap has been established. Uh, we hope that we are going to assess ourselves at the end of the year, but a roadmap has been established and, uh, and technical working groups have been put in place to, to deal with this work. And, uh, and, and time is not on our side, so we, we have to ensure that we, we meet the deadline. Yes, thank you, Prudent. I'll just one final question before I let you go on this. Um, one of the issues that um, as a... Uh, uh, advices to businesses we are concerned with is the issue of uh, investor state dispute settlement. I mean, there's been a lot of discussions around this as to whether African countries should allow investor state disputes settlement mechanism under the investment protocol uh, instead of just subjecting the protocol to the general dispute settlement mechanism under the framework agreement, which is only state base, which is basically that only a state can complain about violations under the protocol. Is this something that you believe is being discussed? Is it even an issue for discussion among the negotiators? Or do you have a sense of where African countries are likely to lean towards at the, at the end of the negotiation? Uh, that's a very tricky question because uh, it's a substantive issue for negotiation. Uh, we already have a general uh, dispute settlement mechanism for the AFCFTA, but when it comes to investor state dispute uh, settlement, it has to be embedded in the protocol on investment, which is yet to be concluded. So 
Uh, there could be um, different positions on the matter, uh, but we will wait to see the outcomes of negotiation. If member states are willing to include it in the legal agreement, then it will be so. But if they decide not to include it, then we also uh, take it as the outcome of negotiation. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much, Prudence. Thank you. Um, so, within the broader conversation about the benefits that the continent would derive from the free trade area, one of the issues that has come up is the role of women and the youth. Um, the research has shown that um, uh, a higher percentage of the enterprises, SMEs and uh, micro enterprises in Africa are run by women and the young people are those who are going into all these entrepreneurial ventures. Now, what is the net for women? How are we going to get women involved? Is there a role for women either in the framework agreement or in the implementation strategies of African countries? And to, to help us discuss this topic, I want to call on somebody who's been very much involved in these uh, discussions. Uh, Adelaide Bene-Prempe. So Adelaide, can you kickstart our discussion on this particular topic? Where do you see the role for women in all this? Thank you very much, Augustine, and uh, welcome to all my African brothers on the panel. Um, can I say that at the outset, that this is a very exciting time for um, Africa, doing things for Africans. And a key part of the success story will be women and our youth. Um, when one looks at the foundational agreement, um, in particular articles 3E, there's clearly a feature for gender equality. Uh, if you move to the trade uh, protocol and services, uh, there's also uh, an indication for export capacity being increased, uh, focusing on women, youth, uh, and our micro, small and medium enterprises. So it is quite clear that women uh, are focused clearly, uh, we have a role to play. But it's important that we don't stop there because although women have been flagged up and identified clearly as an important aspect of, of any success to this Africa continental free trade, it's important we look at the situation women find themselves now um, the possible challenges, the existing challenges, and how we can work our way through it. So my, my first point really is to look at the informal sector. I think statistics will show that majority of um, people engaged in the informal sector are women. Um, women have been engaging in informal cross-border uh, transactions, um, but that doesn't come without the vulnerabilities involved, um, issues to do with harassment, red tape, uh, sometimes incarceration with, with false accusations flying everywhere. So we have to look at the informal sector and how to bring women and our youth into the formalized space. Another key challenge is access to finance, which I'll touch on uh, briefly. Of course, we have um, access to finance and access to financial services education and uh, bringing women into the digitalized space as well. So first of all, looking at the informalized sector, it is fair to say that if we're going to make that leap into the formalized space, then women have to be ready for it. Firstly, we have to look at education of women. 
in terms of skill sets, in terms of knowledge, uh, awareness of opportunities available, and also training uh, to be able to take advantage of the cross-border value chain uh, transactions that we speak of. We also have to look at access to finance. Now, statistics will show that there is a huge funding gap between women and men when it comes to access to finance. Um, the assessment of the Africa Development Bank is that 97% uh, of women pay their loans back to the banks, and yet they really struggle to get loans from banks to finance uh, trade, to finance their businesses. Why is that? Um, one thing that comes to mind is the regulatory framework that exists, uh, be it in tradition or in our culture. There are instances where women cannot access uh, property. They do not have property ownership. And therefore, if they approach a bank, the issue of collateral is raised and that causes issues for them. In this regard, I have to commend the Africa Development Bank uh, for the AFAWA um, initiative, which was recently launched, which is essentially affirmative finance action for women in Africa, whereby they have leveraged $3 billion to support women in, in trade. So these are the sort of angles that we have to look at. Uh, it's important to emphasize that women are not looking for special treatment in this regard, but we're looking for equal treatment. So we essentially are far behind and we need to be propelled um, to join our men to be able to uh, uh, reap the benefits of this uh, uh, agreement. Um, finally, we look at digital access for uh, women. Um, certainly, uh, close at the heels of COVID-19, we've all realized how important the digital economy is, the digital-powered economy is. Life is indeed now digital. There's no escaping that. And I think that uh, prior to COVID-19, uh, where people were hesitant to, example, for example, uh, giving their credit card information online or accessing health services by video link and uh, doing our examinations virtually, I think we've now been propelled into the future. And if you're not in the digital space, then, then it's problematic. And women in this regard, again, have to be given the opportunity of training. If we're looking at women operating in the informal sector, now having to access a market digitally, access training digitally, then we have to be intentional. We have to be deliberate uh, as to how we bring women into uh, the real playing field. Um, and therefore, we have to look at our laws. We have to look at opportunities. We have to look at policies uh, to make sure they are gender sensitive uh, to assist uh, our women. And I think closely tied to that is our SMEs. And I think in any assessment, you would say that majority of businesses in Africa are SMEs. Um, so the success of the Africa continental free trade area does not depend at all on the multinationals or the big companies, but rather on the SMEs. And again, if we look at SMEs, one key thing that most SMEs talk about is access to finance. Um, Indeed, in terms of getting the sort of capital to start a business is a problem. Um, we can't rely on uh, you know, the Af African Development Bank alone to help us worm our way out of that. I mean, I, in, in, in recent times, I know they have leveraged, again, $1 billion uh, facility to assist that. 
but we have to look within our own space and see how best uh, we can prepare our SMEs to take full advantage of that. And when one looks at that, you know, you look at access to finance as well, you look at uh, digital training. Um, we noticed from last year that our SMEs, our youth, are extremely innovative. And that when push came to shove, we found ourselves to be very creative. We were, we were practicing being self-sufficient when borders were closed. So we have to look at that space and see how well to champion that. And I think key to this, again, will be the regulatory framework. Um, I'm glad to hear from my brother Prudence that uh, we are looking at negotiating phase two by the end of this year. And when you look at phase two, I think it's all geared towards developing our SMEs. We look at intellectual property, which will uh, safeguard and protect uh, our creative uh, business men and women. We look at the investment protocol, which will be very important in, in the ease of doing business cross-border. Uh, for example, if you have investment-friendly uh, policies across the board and harmonized, then that lends itself beautifully into collaborations and joint ventures. Um, if you look at um, competition, I think healthy competition is good in improving uh, the quality of work, the quality of product, and helps us to actually start playing very well in the uh, cross-border space. So these are a few aspects that we have to look at very carefully. Um, and I think finally, I'd have to touch on interconnectivity inter generally across the board because one has to rely on that. If you look at our small and medium-sized enterprises, they do not have the capital to physically trade across borders, moving goods from here and there. And if we can rely on a um, uniform interconnectivity, then that helps us. And I think in that regard, I heard the Secretary General talking about soon, soon introducing a platform generally, which will not only deal with interconnectivity, it will also deal with trade data, it will deal with processes to verify documentation and so on. So we are very much in a good space. We're all raring to go, but it's very important that we take some deliberate and intentional steps to support the more, the more vulnerable people, but the majority of our business community. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much, uh, Adley. Just a question on that about being intentional. Um, would you consider a revision of our public procurement laws, for example, to have a, a preferential public procurement regime that will favor women? Is that something that you will recommend to, to the policymakers? I knew that question would come, Augustine. That's why at the beginning, I mentioned that we don't want special treatment, but we rather want equal treatment. Now, the way of doing that is not necessarily going by way of affirmative action, but there are ways that policies can be reconsidered to make them more gender sensitive in terms of the prerequisites that one needs to meet in order to get into the procurement space in the first place. Um, so there are ways of looking at that. And, and what would be very useful is that when these policies are being formulated, there are stakeholder engagements that necessarily include women and the youth to test out these ideas, 
And then when they come into implementation to ensure constant monitoring, to ensure that this is actually workable, these are working. But, but certainly, you know, it's, it's that our laws are very much at the top. But when you look down to implementation, I think that's where the real issues arise in terms of guidance, in terms of policies and the like. So we can revisit that and see how best uh, to look at that. For example, if we're looking at prerequisites and you're being asked to produce a certain amount of money or, for example, a number, a catalog of experiences of deals that you have been engaged in in the past, and you can see that disproportionately that affects women, then that is something that has to be looked at uh, to be able to bring uh, women into an equal level playing field space. All right, thank you. Um, so just, just taking it uh, a little bit further, considering that most of the businesses we have in Africa, you mentioned the informal sector, which is a chunk of our businesses, these, these are small scale enterprises, you know, and uh, you mentioned that the future or the success of the free trade area lies in African businesses and not huge multinationals. Now, one of the, 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 the concerns that people have raised is that, look, we are not even aware of this uh, Africa free trade area thing. We don't know what's happening, you know, and these are people in the informal sector. What do you think can be done to bring them on board? All these suggestions are wonderful. Uh, policymakers can make the laws and all that. But what do we need to do to get the people on the ground, the real people who need to benefit, who need to get this message? What do we need to do to bring them on board? I think it, it starts really from sensitization. I, I think that you know each country to their own, um, and you know. Some, some countries may differ in the approach, um, but we know in terms of our cultural setting, uh, there are ways of reaching out uh, to the rural communities, the informal sector, uh, to sensitize them about it. And it's important that when one is sensitizing them, you are also incentivizing them by what you're providing for them. That, you know, for example, if you're looking at somebody in the formal, informal sector, invariably, uh, they are the ones what in terms of labor, they are working in very menial jobs. But if there's a hope for them to leapfrog into the industrial space, for example, by way of uh, jobs, then they are more willing to be trained to improve upon themselves. And when it comes to women, improve upon their families, because that's where it really uh, ends up. When you are, you're improving the livelihood of a woman, you're improving the livelihood of a family and the community. So it's important that in one breath, they are being trained about it. They are being made aware of the opportunities, but you have to take it a step further by ensuring that they know what is in it for them. That if they commit to this sort of training and awareness, then perhaps um, they might be more involved in the manufacturing space, um, or they might more, be more involved in cross-border uh, value chains as well. So it's a monumental task but it's something that necessarily has to be done because of the chunk of informal uh, traders that we have. Uh, these are all the people that will be carried on, carried forward together to make it work. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. One of the things you mentioned is about how to, to, to get women involved in the cross-border value chain. 
but uh, as Prudence said, one of the lessons we learned from this COVID uh, pandemic is, is that we need to improve our own capacities to be able to be uh, self-sufficient. So I think that's one of the lessons that we, we can pick from the effect of COVID-19. Um, but I want our next panelist, Mr. David Ofosudote, to, to take us through what African businesses, particularly SMEs, need to pick from the effect of this COVID-19 on their businesses and how they can leverage on that to become competitive, not just within Africa, but also globally, so that we can go up the global value chain and then stop this traditional uh, rule of being a raw uh, product exporters. So Mr. Fosudote. Yeah, thank you, uh, Augustine, and then um, uh, hello to all my colleagues. Uh, everyone here is either a brother or a sister, actually. Uh, and also to uh, the audience. So, yes, I I, I get your point. Uh, the the fastest way to do that is to draw attention to the markets, uh, the existence of the market, and the fact that by the very commencement of the AFCFTA or CFTA, we have one large market that we can take advantage of. And, and I will touch on, I mean. Uh, perhaps how we can do that uh, factoring into uh, it's the SMEs. But we, if we want the private sector to take advantage, the public sector needs to act as well. And, and, and it works together, the, the two of them. That's why I'm emphasizing the market aspect as the first uh, point. If you have a larger market that people are not aware of, they don't take advantage of it. And, and uh, something may be very opposite here. I have led a study for one international organization in Africa. I mean, I cannot mention that for now, but one of the revelations of that study, uh, contrary to what many people say that SMEs are not aware, one of the revelations of the study is that a large number of SMEs are actually aware of the CFTA, but well over 90% are aware. But there is a contrasting revelation that uh, makes your point even more uh, uh, key. That revelation is that if you took the SMEs as a whole, well over 50% of them are, are not even planning to increase their capacity or to take advantage of the CFT opportunity over the next five years. When you ask them the question, if you are aware about the CFT, how are you positioning yourself and how are you taking advantage? It's basically zero. Uh, in other words, they do not see the CFT as an advantage. The only way you can create a market for businesses to take advantage is to let them see the advantage and also to incentivize them to do, to do that. So that's one area that I think we have to do a, a lot in that regard. And on that, we don't have to wait for negotiations to finish, uh, phase two negotiations or phase one to finish. It's true, as, as Dr. Mangani said, and very good that Ghana and South Africa have symbolized trading on, on, on the AFCFTA forms beginning for January. But, one of the things we tend to overlook is that before AFCFTA, we had already reached 18% of intra-Africa trade by 2019. And this 18% was attained without AFCFTA. In fact, by 2016, we were already past the 16% mark, having come from about 2% some 15 years earlier. So the truth is that SMEs and ordinary people in Africa are already trading. And if you take Ghana and Nigeria as an example, there is a huge number of unaccounted for trade. And I, if I pick it from where Adelaide was talking about, about women and young people and SMEs, 
I, I mean, I've said this on several fora. You take a Gucci and X, they are highly traded across West Africa. I mean, the trade, the Gucci trade between Ghana and Nigeria is massive. Uh, it goes to Nigeria when it's shot uh, uh, there, and it comes back to Ghana when it's shot in Ghana. And if you go to Togo, Benin, almost every egg you buy in the capital is coming from Ghana. However, you won't see this track in most studies. And I'm not, I haven't quite checked the Africa Trade Observatory to see to what extent we have tracked such type of trade. So we are always tracking the large, the cocoa, the manganese, the, the, the timber, the, the, like the large things and forgetting the SMEs. So it's important that we track this, point out their road to them, and recognize that ahead of the CFTA, each country was to create a BIAT, the, the Boosting Intra-Africa Trade uh, Strategy. And under that BIAT, if countries promote the idea about existing intra-Africa trade and how to formalize that informalized sector and bring on board these informal uh, 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 sector uh, uh, players, you'll be going a very large way towards ensuring that they play a role and that the private sector takes advantage uh, of it. Once on that, it's important to point out that SMEs, uh, women in trade, et cetera, do not necessarily intend to scale up. And at times we focus too much on the big corporates and we are talking about scaling up. No, we don't necessarily have to let them scale up, especially if they don't want to. We have to let them upgrade. There's a difference between upgrading and upscaling. Upgrading is when you bring the standard of your product to the level that makes it easy to meet the rules of origin to enable you trade in the corridor that is created. And, 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 and the example is not far-fetched. Between Ghana and, and Cote d'Ivoire, we control 60% plus of the world's cocoa. So without even talking about value addition, you will find that the large part of the people who are planting the cocoa are actually smallholder farmers. But whose standard, because we've created this commodity boss over the period, have been able to upgrade the quality in such a way that they can meet the supplies of the international market through cargo consolidators, which are these commodity boss that operate across the continent. So we need to be looking at these areas in order to integrate them. So creating the markets will be my first point. The other one has to do with debt. Incidentally, COVID-19 has created debt for a number of people. Uh, one is the David, corporate before, before, Sorry, before you move on to debt, I'll come back to you on that shortly. I just want to push back a little about this issue of um, um, the research showing that about 90% of SMEs are aware yeah. of the CFTA. Yeah. But we need to define what we mean when we say awareness. I mean, people know, people may know that there's something like that. But take the technical nuances like rules of origin, which you know is at the heart of it, because that's crucial. Things like knowing which products are traded. So, so there are two separate things. Really and have we, and that. Yes. No, there are two separate things, and we shouldn't confuse them. Awareness is: Are you aware that there is something called CFTA? Uh, the answer is yes. But are you prepared to even take advantage of it? A large part says no. If you are prepared. Then the question is, do you know how to take advantage of it, which is what you are talking about? And in that case, we we'll say this is the form, have a CFTA number, apply to rules of origin, go through GRA, et cetera. That's a separate discussion. Now, when the person is aware, but does not even intend, that becomes a psyche issue, which is one of the things that I think a co-panelist talked about. So that's why I'm saying that the first strategy is to drum up in their minds the advantage the bigger market, the need to upgrade, the need to take advantage of it. That is, that is missing. And for that, you don't need any trade negotiations to be concluded before you do that. The, 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 the downside of not doing this is that 
you will have entities which are not necessarily indigenous who will settle in the countries and uh, find a way of meeting the rules of origin and will be trading all right and expatriate the money, I mean, uh, as it were, uh, 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 export the, the, the advantages outside the, the, the region. So, so it's very important we, we, we do this. Okay, so, so I, I get your point, but, but we definitely have to look at this more critically. Then I was going to debt. The debt situation is a trigger of COVID-19. So first, nations are in debt, and two, private sector entities have suffered because they have tended to sell less and to be less active during this COVID-19 period. What, what we need to do is to think around debt in two different angles. One is how we restructure our debt and in refinancing this debt to focus on trade infrastructure. That's very important because without trade infrastructure, we cannot trade. I mean, uh, I don't want to talk about even the larger mega projects. I'm talking about simply removing the non-tariff barriers and moving from Ghana to Badagri border and crossing 13 border posts, each of whom has a gendarme trying to take some bribe from you from one way or the other. Without spending money in these areas, even when people want to trade, they will have resistance. I mean, just take a very simple example. When Nigeria closed its border to Benin, we all made noise. But that border closure was to Benin only regarding uh, because of the rice which was being coming through Benin as a different route. But if you had a simple uh, direct liner of vessels, go see going vessels between Ghana and, 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 and Nigeria, we could have still exported. But there is none. I mean, unlike Europe, where uh, you from the port of Dover, you can you can you can export from Paris to the rest of, of, of Europe. So again, spending the amount of money on um, on enabling cross-border infrastructure will be key. The other thing we need to spend that money on, again, I'll go back to Adelaide, is giving improved access to finance. And this improved access to finance is, is very key for SMEs and also key for other other entities who want to take advantage of the CFTA. So that's how we need to restructure it. Because if we don't take care and we put the finance entirely in the public sector hands, then at the end of the day, the private sector, which is really the ones who will make this CFTA function, uh, is not going, because there's a private sector which trade, not the public sector. Uh, then let's go to the third point, which has to do with value addition, uh, because you, you can only let this, uh, function when you maximize opportunity. What is the point in Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, again, as an example, controlling 60% of the world's cocoa and they cannot add value to create chocolate. And uh, at the end of the day, you cannot also integrate the SMEs into the value chain, which is why I talked about the, 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 the upgrading as against upscaling. So if we understand that it is important to ensure that we are integrating all this informal sector into the value chain to enable them become suppliers to that value chain. And then ensuring that value is being added because if you boost trade volumes, but the value of the trade is less, then at the end of the day, uh, you are just exporting raw goods. So value addition is quite key, but value addition should not be used as a platitude. You can't add value, for example, I'll just give one example, if you don't have power, and therefore, when I talk about structuring your policies to ensure that your debt finances infrastructure, it will include, for example, ensuring that you are not just generating power, but you are generating power to industry at a tariff that will enable industry to become competitive. And then let me, let me just give one example. The example is, no matter how much we remove the tariffs over the 90% of goods in the 5,000 baskets that we will put in the, in the rules of origin, the average 
value component of any item which, are, which is sold, which is manufactured, is 30% is due to power or to, to energy. The average power tariff in China, as an example, is 4 cents per kilowatt hour. And Ghana is doing between 13 to 19 cents per kilowatt hour. For a start, you are non-competitive. It doesn't matter how much it rules of origin and how many, I mean, how much tariff you remove over the, over the five-year period. Or if your cost of capital, we've dealt with access to capital. If your cost of capital is said that you are borrowing at 25% per annum, whilst the person in Europe is borrowing at 1% per annum, you are uncompetitive. So these are issues you need to address that will enable the value addition makes sense and that will make us a, 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 a competitive. And, and lastly, I think we need to consciously accelerate all the enablers. And, and by the enablers, I'll give just one example. COVID has created an opportunity for us to trade using digital means. So it has its downsides. We are talking about vaccines and all the rest. But the enabler as a digitized mechanism for trade creates a situation where we can overcome some of the non-tariff barriers by using digitization and, 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 and letting people be able to integrate uh, much faster. And we need to pay attention to some of these things. And in my view, these are some of the lessons we can learn to enable us accelerate the benefits that we can get from, from the whole uh, trade area concept. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. That's, that's, that's a lot. Um, before we open the discussion for questions, I would like to invite Dr. Mangini to make an intervention on the issue of COVID and how that has impacted uh, on the after implementation process. Dr. Mangini. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Kitsol. Um, because this issue of COVID is so important, um, I'm requ I requested uh, Kitsol to allow me to make some observations uh, on this matter. It's a life and death matter. So I want to make uh, the following points. The first one is, uh, as uh, Prudence has uh, told us, the thing has hit us quite hard. However, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the IMF predicts that uh, this year, 2021, the African economy will begin to rec recover and grow by 3.1%. So I thought this is an important message to make in order for it not to appear that all is lost and that Africa is not open for business. We still are open for business and we are prepared to tackle this head on. Now, I wanted to mention as well, some of the things we've done as Africa to deal with this crisis. We established the Africa Medical Supplies Platform. If you Google it, you will see. It's a platform for electronic or online trade where therapeutics and other interventions that we need in order to address this uh, crisis uh, can be uploaded, a market, an online market for selling and for purchasing. Now, as we speak now, more than $200 million worth of trade has taken place on this Africa medical supplies platform, which is a, a very important intervention uh, put uh, forward by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of Africa in conjunction with the, where David comes from, the Afro champions, as well as the African Union. We've come up with apps with some uh, technological interventions to allow us facilitate travel on the continent. Panabios, for instance, app allows our laboratories to be um, 
mutual recognition of the tests, the COVID tests, as well as, you know, having a digital way of moving around with these tests and uh, certifying them and proving them uh, so that they are not fake. Now, this Panabios uh, uh, app is being replicated across the world. The UNDP has shown interest uh, to use it as well. Now, the other thing I would like to mention is that uh, you colleagues will remember that uh, the world has been hit by various uh, uh, medical uh, health, public health crisis, not just uh, COVID, uh, but also as well as AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, and Ebola. Now, the TRIPS agreement of the WTO uh, was amended in 2005 to introduce Article 31 bis, which allows us to take measures such as compulsory licensing or issue voluntary licenses in order for us to manufacture our own medical, uh, medical uh, our own medicines or maybe even vaccines. Uh, for instance, for AIDS, we have got a number of factories around Africa which now produce a generic medicine for this. So this is a, a right that we have under the WHO agreement to have put in place interventions to deal with COVID. We know vaccines are coming on board, but we know that Africa is, the queue is very long for Africa. Its projections are that we might have to wait for two years, three years before we get these medicines. So we need to aggressively move in to procure these vaccines, but also maybe to begin producing them ourselves on the continent and not just say vaccines, but therapeutics as well and other equipment. So Thank I you. sought for, uh, you know, an opportunity to raise these issues. And I wanted to congratulate our sister Adelaide on her important presentation. And I don't know whether I can just make this contribution that uh, in my previous life, I worked with an organization called the Common Market for Eastern and Southern Africa, COMESA. What we did there was to introduce an organization called FEMCOM. It's like a technical agency of Comesa, which is a, a specialized agency to deal with the issues for empowering women. So, so that it's not left to chance, but there is a, a framework, a legal institutional framework for dealing with women issues. I hope that this maybe can be brought on board as we discuss further. Uh, probably I need to mention, maybe Prudence will support me here, that uh, there's now in the offing, the possibility of having a protocol, an after protocol, on women, youth, and SMEs. Uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa proposed it, and uh, we are beginning to think seriously about developing a protocol uh, on women, uh, including SMEs and uh, uh, youth. Now, lastly, could I just, uh, for the sake of our participants, since we have 127, so this is a big success to the University of Ghana for organizing this event, just frame a picture of what the AFC, FTA, or AFTA looks like, or should look like. AFTA must be inclusive. That means it must prioritize women, young Africans, and SMEs. It must be transformative. That means that it must create jobs, and it must promote regional value chains, industrialization, address infrastructure. It must be functional. That means all institutions must be activated. It must be rules-based. That means we need full implementation and compliance. It should be knowledge, innovation, and technology-driven so that it's fit for the fourth industrial revolution. It should be globally networked. That means we need a universal Africa, which takes into account as well issues such as science diplomacy to deal with challenges on the continent as well as around the world 
but we need partnerships. We can't go it alone. We are not uh, hiding or running away from the rest of the world. We are still in the world. We need it to work for us, be shaped also to take into account our priorities. And then we did a well-resourced secretariat, which is fit for purpose because the secretariat is the technical arm of the AFCFTA, uh, uh, of the African continent of free trade area. Well-resourced in terms of money, funds, as well as people, boots on the ground. So, uh, Mr. Kinsel, my nephew, I thought I should just paint this uh, broad picture so that we have a, yeah. a clear uh, you know, view of what the AFCFTA looks like or what it must grow to look like as we continue to build it and strengthen it. Thank you so much for the Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Mangini. Uh, may I just add that those who are in Accra, please feel free to pass by the, the secretary, at least to have a feel of, of the place. <laughs> so now let's move on to questions. And the first question from uh, one of the participants, Nanaya uh, Ose, is about how the informal sector is expected to benefit from trade if priority has not been made towards their benefit. And essentially, she's saying that it looks like informal sector has not been prioritized. I know Adelaide and then David have made wonderful contributions on that. So I just want to allow uh, David to make two quick points, two quick points in response to this question. Do you think informal sector has been prioritized? It, it, it has. I think what has to happen more is for informal sector associations to make their voice heard uh, by contacting the secretariat and by talking to their governments in charge of trade and industry to see how they integrate their members. That's one. And the other thing is to also uh, sensitize their members on how they may take advantage. And associations themselves may become the, the, the platform through which they may be able to take advantage. Okay, thank you. Adelaide, can you, do you have uh, an intervention to make on that? Well, I think that it really starts with simplicity. Um, we have, we owe it to the informal sector to make sure that whatever rules um, come up as a result of the regulatory framework are in simplified versions uh, for people to understand. Because if we're looking at the informal sector, and we're imagining um, a world where they are now operating on all fours uh, with the rest of uh, SMEs that are in the formalized sector, then there has to be a way of bridging that gap. And I think in looking at their roles, it cannot be one size fits all. There has to be a way of breaking it down, cutting out the red tape where necessary, making sure that roles are tailored to suit people's circumstances. That will be a way of getting them interested, getting them to digest what is in front of them and actually making it work for them. So there's, there's further breaking down to be done apart from the rules as we know it or, or the rules that are to come. Excellent, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, the next question is directed at Prudence. And this is from Na Ashali. The question is, when are negotiations on rules of origin likely to be concluded? In what range is the threshold likely to be in order to meet appropriate value addition requirements? Uh, this is directed at Prudence, but after Prudence, I would let Dr. Mangini say a few words on, on that. Prudence. Yes, yes, thank you very much for the question. Um, the roadmap 
uh, that has been adopted by the assembly to conclude outstanding rules of origin is by end of June 2021. So it's the in the next uh, six months. And, and this is um, about um, uh, the eight, 18% um, outstanding rules of origin. We have so far concluded up to 82% of uh, rules of origin, counting from the number of total tariff lines um, uh, that uh, of products to be traded under the FCFTA. Um, with regard to the other question, what is the threshold of um, of, of value addition uh, for rules of origin? I would like to mention that um, the FCFTA has opted for product-specific rules of origin. So each product has got its own specific rules of origin that are applicable to it, uh, depending on the uh, production process involved uh, for, that pro for that product. Um, there is no um, uh, one threshold for value addition. It can range from 40 uh, up to even 70%. Uh, depending on the production process of each product. So there's no specific uh, threshold for, for rules of origin, unless um, you take your time and go through uh, the appendix four on rules of origin and go to the interested chapter and interested product that you want to, uh, to refer to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Prudence. Dr. Mangini. Uh, I think Prudence has uh, really addressed the question of when uh, uh, the rules of origin negotiations will be completed, as well as uh, the threshold. Maybe all I can add is that uh, the rules of origin are designed to ensure that after is for products made in Africa, all right? So we don't want after to be used for products made uh, outside Africa. It's primarily for products made in Africa. So the rules of origin help us to make sure that after is being used for products which are made in Africa. And this can be either products which are wholly obtained, meaning they grow out of the soil of Africa, like fruits and vegetables or minerals, or if they have been uh, transformed or processed using some inputs from outside Africa, then there should be some local content. So that's why Prudence is saying that there should be at least a 40% value addition or, and the threshold rise up to 70%. If they, if they are adequate uh, uh, amounts of uh, uh, raw materials or inputs on the continent. So it's this is the only point I can try to emphasize that uh, we try to, to make sure after serves Africa, promotes made in Africa, promotes regional value chains that David talked about, as well as our sister Adelaide. It's all I can add. And uh, they are a very important instrument. Ghana has demonstrated that uh, it's feasible to use our rules of origin. Uh, we encourage everybody else, all other countries, economic operators uh, to use them in trading uh, within Africa to boost intra-Africa trade. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Mangini. But uh, the next question, I think I would let Dr. Mangini have uh, first take on that and then I'll go to David. Uh, so the question is, if 
for political reasons, a trader or an entrepreneur is denied a visa to enter another country to market his or her goods, what would be the dispute uh, resolution mechanism? I would like to rephrase the question to say, this after we've been talking about trade, 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 and all that, but people are those who trade. We know we have a, we have a lot of uh, restrictions in terms of movement of people. Dr. Mangini and uh, uh, David, is this something that has really been considered in terms of free movement of people within the continent? Uh, all right, if uh, uh, maybe I can go. Uh, right, so now uh, maybe the first point to make is that uh, uh, AFTA has got a, a comprehensive dispute settlement system, all right? Uh, which uh, Augustine helps to head uh, at the AFTA Secretariat. This dispute settlement system uh, operates as follows. Uh, if there's a problem, a state party can uh, lodge a complaint against another state party. And then uh, the dispute settlement body, which is made up of all the member states, all the state parties, will set up a panel of three people who will look into the matter, produce a report with findings and recommendations. Uh, for consideration by the entire membership. And uh, if the measure is inconsistent with the agreement, uh, the country which is putting in place that measure will be asked to withdraw that measure. And if that country refuses to withdraw that measure, there can be consequences. For instance, withdrawal of uh, preferences or preferential uh, treatment. So we have a comprehensive system to deal with breaches of the agreement. And then secondly, we have a non-tariff barrier system for dealing with the uh, issues of border crossing, like that, where even a denial of entry could be one of them. Uh, they are, it could be addressed as a non-tariff uh, barrier issue. Uh, I need to point out that under the services protocol, the protocol on trading services, which envisages movement of natural persons, uh, if a, a person is prevented from crossing a border to supply services, uh, it can be a matter properly for dispute settlement. Now, having said that, I would like to point out that uh, there is another dedicated instrument on the African passport and free movement of people in Africa. This passport, this uh, instrument protocol was opened for signature on the same day as the AFCFTA agreement, that is 21st of March, 2018 in Kigali. Uh, it requires 15 countries for it to enter into force. Regrettably, we haven't gardened that number of ratifications for the agreement to enter into force. Nevertheless, it remains a priority for Africa so that we have visa-free movement across the continent. And if somebody is denied entry, then it becomes a breach of the agreement. Then uh, lastly, I need to point out that uh, a number of countries such as Ghana, Kenya, Rwanda, Seychelles are putting in place autonomous systems for removing visas or granting visas on arrival at entry points. So this also is supposed to facilitate trade. The ADB does what's called the Visa Restrictiveness Index, uh, which tries to look at the situation on the continent regarding travel and the visas. Uh, and uh, what we see is that over, the, over, the, over a period of time, the situation has been improving so that our African passports can also be as strong as uh, other passports around the world terms of traveling on the continent. Uh, it has been ironical that say, someone carrying a European passport, or a passport of one of the European countries or an American passport can travel more easily on the continent than someone carrying an African passport. 
So this irony is what we are trying to address through these interventions, including autonomous measures for relaxing visa restrictiveness. So this is what I can say. In this All right. Thank you, David. David, before you come in, let me just add this question, which would be our last question. We are running out of time, so we can't take all the questions. Now, the question is, is from my good friend, Courage. says, what do you think are the possible obstacles that may affect or impede Africa's economic trade integration process under the AFTA? I know we've discussed the challenges, looked at opportunities and not about. Essentially, it's asking, yes, it's all well and good but can we take a step back and look at what is likely to impede this uh, integration process? Okay, so uh, just following up from what Dr. Mangeni said, uh, there is the upcoming single air transport market, which I think we really need to accelerate because at the end of the day, even if we have the visa-free, uh, we have the African passports, uh, which of course we are all waiting for, you still nevertheless need to have the medium to to, to move around. And, and, and I think the, the earlier African countries work on that, uh, the better. There is a second point which has to do with goose. 97% of goose worldwide are moved by sea. And Africa completely, totally lacks what we call liners, which is, which is essentially seagoing vessels which move from point to point regularly. So just to give you one illustration, if you wanted to ship a, 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 a ton of pineapples from here to Europe, it will actually cost you lesser than it will enable you to, I mean, the same shipping, the same ton of pineapple from here to Nigeria, because technically it has to go to Europe and come back because of the liner uh, vessels, which we don't have here. So again, without solving the transportation problem, uh, we're going to have a challenge. But regarding your next question, I think the whole thing re relates to our psyche as a people. And we need to work a lot on that psyche. Let me just illustrate a couple of points and, and I'll conclude there. African countries have eagerly signed open skies agreement with the US and with some European countries, which simply means, for example, that uh, over a period, it's easy for American airlines to come here without going through the fifth freedom negotiations. Why can't we sign simple, uh, sim similar agreements, open skies with fellow African countries? And why are we so reluctant to uh, accede to the, the, the single air transport markets? Secondly, the other example has to do with the fact that if you take the CFTA itself, one of the goals is for Africans to negotiate as a collective. First one to the CFTA, I've seen several African countries, unfortunately, including our own, signing bilateral agreements with UK, Mauritius with India, Kenya with US, etc., which is self-defeating. I think the private sector should put enough pressure on governments for governments to recognize the total import of the CFTA to act as a collective for our collective good. And, 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 and for me, that's the direction to go. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. So I want to thank all the panelists. It's been wonderful having you today. Um, this is an interesting conversation that I wish we could uh, continue, but because of time constraint, we'll end it here, at least on this medium, and then we'll continue the conversation privately and in our uh, respective organizations. Thank you to all the participants for joining us today. And we want to thank especially our, our partners who have made this um, seminar possible. Um, the, this seminar has been re recorded and it will be available on, on, on YouTube for those who want to um, go over some of the presentations that have been made today. So thank you. Thank you very much. And then we wish you all the best. Thank you, Augustine. Thank you, Augustine.
Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Augustine. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Augustine, and everybody. Thank you. Bye, -bye. Bye for now.